When did you know you were going to be a writer, Glenn? I was really little. I was like nine or ten years old. Um, I, I actually, at first, I wanted to be a fictional character. I, I distinctly remember wanting to be James Bond or the Hardy Boys or Sherlock Holmes. It was mostly detectives and spies. And at some point around 10 or 11 years old, I, it occurred to me that there were people who wrote those, pe those people that I wanted to be and that life I wanted to live. And I, rec I sort of shifted an inch over, but I've never really stopped wanting to be fictional. <laughs> so that's how writing is for me. It's just an attempt to be fictional at all times. How did you discover that, oh wait, there are authors here and, and I Actually, want to learn more about that? There, there was a magazine called Show Magazine at the, uh, back in the 1960s and there was an interview with Ian Fleming who wrote James Bond and he wrote an article about how he wrote James Bond and it blew my mind because there was this person saying how you could create this world with these people in it and I was like, that's what I want to be. And then um, Harriet the Spy. Harriet the Spy was a huge influence on me. Uh, she wanted to be a writer and she, um, she explored the world around her and I was like, that's, that's what the job I want. That's the life. <laughs> Did your parents try to talk you out of it or were no. they encouraging? No, no, my parents were very supportive. I was very lucky in that way. They were scared, they were nervous. <laughs> um, but it wasn't like this was an outrageous thing to do. It was just, we hope that you can survive. Oh, okay. And, so and there were times when that was in question. Um, they, they helped me out financially a lot, after, especially in the many years after college when I was not making any money. Um, I've been very lucky that way. I had a lot of support. Can you explain how anxiety almost ruined your writing career? It, it almost stopped it from starting. Uh, I was a terribly, terribly anxious young person. Still, I'm very anxious. I just actually writing has become sort of the way I counter anxiety. It's one of the few things that's totally within my control, and control is what helps. Having the feeling of having something in your control is what helps anxiety. So, um, being able to go into a fictional world or create a world or f follow a story in your mind. Um, was one of the few things that would prevent me from feeling anxious. And yet when I tried to write them down, I was always very self-critical. Uh, it always seemed more complicated than just making it up in your head to actually get it down on, on paper. Um, was, was very difficult. And so I started wanting to write when I was 10 or 11. And I would write outlines or plans for things and write beginnings of things, but I wouldn't be able to actually finish them. Um, and I could not figure out why. The answer was anxiety. The answer was not having a process. Um, and, and it took about 10, 15 years of struggling with that and having writer's block and, and being talented. I mean, I could think of the stuff. I would write good stuff when I wrote, but I would write very, very rarely and it would be very upsetting. Um, and one of the things I had to teach myself, which is what I now try to teach others, is the importance of having a reassuring process, a routine, a, a, a very mechanical way of doing the work so that there's no anxiety involved because it's just like if you were a musician, you would practice your instrument. Regardless of quality, regardless of, of importance, you just run your finger over the keys over and over and over again. And if you do that as a writer, if you push yourself to just write, even if it's bad, if you push yourself to just 
get used to the experience of stopping and starting and starting and stopping every day for days and days and days, eventually it becomes so comforting and familiar that you can actually do the creative stuff. The creative stuff comes after the process. Uh, a lot of this actually reminded me, I eventually ran into Stanislavski's writing about actors and I recognize that it's the same thing. I, I actually think of it as method writing because the idea of an actor having to go out on a stage and be able to summon up an emotion on cue every night, when it was in theater and you had to do it every night, um, was a struggle that anyone would have a problem doing. And so Stanislavski tried to work out a process, a method, by which you can create a, a, a very mysterious thing called emotion on cue, even if it's not yours, even if you don't feel it. And that's essentially what a writer does, there's just nobody looking. But you have to sit down at your desk and somehow transport yourself into a fictional world, into a created place with people who are not you, and you have to feel these feelings and imagine this stuff that has to come out of you from you know not where. People don't know where creativity comes from. You know when you get it, you know when it's happening, but you don't know how it happens. And you can't. So what you can know is if I create this ritual, this routine by which I'm going to always open the same type of notebook or I'm going to have the same format I'm working in and I'm going to understand the mechanics of writing, the idea of character and story and people taking action. And if you get all those things and you apply them to whatever you're writing over and over, you'll eventually become so comfortable with the process that you'll become creative. And after many, many years where I would just panic every time I had to write. Now I actually find that writing is the thing that keeps me from panicking about life <laughs> and that I'll find myself every day if I don't write, I get nervous. But um, if I do write or if I, if I trust the process, it will absolutely take away the anxiety. I, I can, you can't guarantee much about the arts, but I can guarantee that practice and exposure to the process and creating a ritual is almost always guaranteed to make your art better. And so it sounds like that definitely didn't come right away for you. <laughs> you, you it took years because you, you were enrolled in school and then you left? I was, I was very lucky. I got into Yale University. On, uh, there was a, a freak moment <laughs> when they were accepting very creative people without great grades. Um, it was in the mid-1970s and the world was in turmoil and things were not as stressed as they are now, I guess. All I know is I was good at English but not much else and I applied to a bunch of schools and I got into Yale and so I went. I didn't actually even want to go to college. I just wanted to be a writer and I thought this is just a waste of my time but I got in, I can't not go. And I went and it was cool experience but by the end of the first year I was struggling with my writing and I blamed college. I now know what I just told you which is that I had been struggling with my writing before college and I was going to struggle with it after college but for that moment I was like ah oh, if I only didn't have this college thing I would be able to write which is crazy because like I had you know four classes and I didn't have that much to do <laughs> but um, I dropped out uh, in my the beginning of my sophomore year and I called my parents. I actually said to them, would you take the money you're paying college and just give it to me to pay for an apartment so I can be a writer? And they said no. 
which <laughs> oh, okay. they're, they're not insane. They're supportive, but not crazy. <laughs> okay. And they said, but you know, if you want to come home, come home. So I came home and I lived in the basement um, and I just tried to write. And all the problems I had that I blamed on college, they were still there when college wasn't. And I, was tr I tried everything. It would be like, oh, if I only had this music to play, then I would be able to write and I would go out and buy a record. And then, oh, if I only read this book, I would be prepared to write this book. And a whole year went by like that. I just like terribly stressed and never getting anything done and, and trying every day and feeling terrified because I had screwed up college and now I had nothing. Um, and one day I was, I was trying to write a play and I ended up writing the opening of a movie version of the play. I was reading William Goldman's um, scripts and, and novels, and William Goldman is such an amazing and influential writer, and his style of screenwriting is so catchy that I just thought, I, I can't write this play, but I can imagine the movie version of the play. I'll write it in his style. So I wrote about six or seven pages of the opening, and it was the first thing I had written in about a year. Um, and it, it sort of broke open the gates um, to the concept of this, what I was saying about uh, having a process, just learning how to understand who the characters are and what the scene they're in is. And if you learn to think in scenes, then you just write that one scene. Um, so that was that. I got six pages written in a year. <laughs> and I said, I better go back to college because I need something to cover the next three years while I try and figure out how to get over this. I went back to college. This is a terribly long story. Is oh, that I'm okay? Okay. Yeah. What, did <laughs> so you live in? Is it? New I Haven? lived in New York. Oh, okay. Um, and uh -huh. I so it wasn't far from New Haven. And I they they um, they took me back um, with some caveats. And then I had a couple of years when I was going to college and trying to overcome this writing problem, which I was working towards. But honestly, it wasn't until after that. So we're talking now, years and years later. I'm still having a hard time with getting all the creativity out. And um, I was trying to write a novel, and I was working as an office temp. I worked as an office temp for 12 years on and off after college before I started to make a living as a writer. And um, during the many years of office temping, I was writing at different people's desks every day. I would have a new job every day sometimes, and I would lug my writing around in a little briefcase. And I had to learn how to write in the spaces when no one was bothering me at temp jobs. So like someone would say, go Xerox something, I'd Xerox, and I'd have like half an hour, nothing to do, and that's when I could write. And so that was like the antithesis of a good writing space. <laughs> I'm in a public office, and I have a little notebook. And I learned that if you just think about the scene you're in, you just think about the moment that this character is trying to accomplish this one thing that they are doing, because people only do one thing at a time. Characters are only doing one thing at a time. So you only need to write that one thing. And so I specifically remember there was a scene of a character, the story was that he had sublet his apartment to a serial killer. <laughs> he was a wannabe screenwriter. And he just discovered a body in his apartment and he goes to call the police. This is back in the 80s, so it was, he had to go to the payphone on the corner. And I had to describe what it's like to run to a payphone in the corner in the rain and tell the police that you've sublet your apartment to a serial killer. And 
I just tried to imagine what it was like for a struggling screenwriter. And I had, I had at the time holes in my shoes because they had worn through and I'd put cardboard in them. So I described what it was like when the rainwater came through the hole in your shoe and what it was like to try and explain to the police why you had sublet your apartment to a serial killer. I had not done that part, but I was in the moment. And that's really what it's about. Thinking about the scene and being in the moment and understanding what a character is trying to accomplish and why there's an obstacle to that. Um, in this case, the obstacle was shame. <laughs> the fact that he was a little ashamed that he had gotten himself into this position. Um, and so that's it. Character, objective, obstacle, scene. Um, there's somebody who wants something and they're trying to do it, but there's something in their way. If you have that, then you can always find that, just that little piece, then you can write. And I remember writing this scene and going, wow, I did it. The, the thing that was here is down there. And I started to learn to practice that process. The process of thinking in scenes, of understanding that you're not writing the whole story, you're just in this moment with this character. And that was the beginning of teaching myself that process. And it still took a long time, but that's, that's what I learned, that's how I survived, and that's what I'm trying to tell people now. And do you think by the fact that you had just a quick amount of time, half hour, and you knew too probably people in the office might be watching or whatever, yeah. that you, there were no excuses, well, I need to organize this and dust this before I start going? Oh, yeah. When I was in high school and I was like, I'm going to be a writer, but I can only write if I have nothing else to do all day. I mean, even when you're a full-time professional writer, you have other things to do all day. You never get a whole day free. Um, so yeah, I had this irrational sense that I had to have the right kind of music and the right typewriter, which actually did make a difference. And, um, and now I was in the exact opposite of that. I was in a different office every week and God knows somebody could come up to me at any moment and ask me to do something that I hated. And, and that's when I began to recognize that all my insistence on what I thought was the writer's process um, was actually making it harder. And that when I started to recognize that if you think in scenes and if you understand what the character wants and if you, you know, all of that stuff, that method acting for writers, you can, you can do it anywhere, anytime, which was good because I had to do it anywhere at any time. Um, and that's really actually a very valuable thing for anyone who wants to be a professional now because most professionals are going to be working on shows, not movies. They're not going to be writing at home and sending it in. They're going to be in a room and you got to be able to deal with people coming around you and with orders being given and things being changed. And the more that you can get a strong process, a sense that somebody says to you, a guy's on a bus and he's got a duck in his bag, go. And you have to write a scene. The more that you can teach yourself that skill, that tool of being able to imagine a scene, understanding that someone needs to do something, and then getting used to the flow of just putting something down, imagining it and grabbing it in, in a form that you can get onto a paper, that's the most valuable skill. I think I, if you ask any showrunner, I think they're going to say, I really want someone that I can say, this weird thing just was demanded of us. You need to do it. Go. And they come back next, you know, in an hour with a scene. That's really valuable. And that's what office temping taught me. So everyone should go out there and become office temps. <laughs>
And would you, was there like a temporary agency that you would check in with yeah. and they would give yeah, you assignment? Called, yeah, it was called Payson People. They're long gone, but I say oh, hi wow. to them. Um, Interesting. <laughs> it, was, it was sweet. There was a very small office. It wasn't one of the big ones. And, um, but they had, they would, every week I would call in and say, where am I working this week? Um, and sometimes it was like Thursday or at this place, Friday or at this place. Um, and sometimes it was like, you're not working this week. Um, but for much of 10 years, that's what I did. Did anyone pressure you to, or, you know, did they offer you a full-time job? Because sometimes if you're a temp, they go, I like that guy. Yes. Let's hire him, you know. Uh, eventually, there, there was, um, at about the nine-year mark, <laughs> um, I did actually take one of the jobs as a full-time job. The people were lovely, and they knew I was a writer, and I didn't, I was like, don't, if you can't handle the fact that I'm going to be writing every free minute, you know, don't, don't hire me. Um, but we worked it out, and I, so I worked for, because the benefits helped a lot. Um, and also, actually, at that time, I was trying to learn how to do DIY filmmaking, and um, uh, small 8mm video had just started. And I had, I had gotten some 8mm video equipment, and I wanted to make features on 8mm video as uh, practice. Just, I want to make a practice movie. Um, and I thought, like, in theater, you do a workshop. You don't just send the play out into the world. You do practice workshops. And I thought, why don't we do that for movies? So um, I used my office after hours. I, I got permission to, uh, to shoot in the office. I did a whole corporate espionage drama uh, about the snack industry. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, a lot of insider. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah there's, it's a brutal. <laughs> it's yeah, bad. Cutthroat, yeah. And were you riding on the subway? Were you taking the subway to I, I was riding on the subway. I wasn't riding on the subway. Ah, um, okay. I, was, I was absorbing the world in so many ways. Sure. Uh, <laughs> through every orifice. Oh, yeah. Um, but <laughs> but uh, no, I, 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 I tended to write either um, at desks or um, at home in the morning before. Like I'd wake up at like four and write for an hour before getting ready to go. And did anyone question you and say, well, what are you doing with this note? What is this notebook that you're... Writing? Oh, yeah. Well, everyone was like, oh, he's a writer. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> yeah, everyone knew that, that... And there wasn't a Harriet the Spy thing where it's like, what are you writing about us? Um, right. But there was, there was a sense of, like, he's not really... An, uh, at the time, it was called a secretary, um, which I was. Um, yeah, no, people understood I was trying to get out of what I was doing and to be something else. And that was generally looked well upon. People, people didn't give me a hard time. Can you talk more about the fears you had and how did you know they weren't really fears when it came to your writing, especially <sighs> when you were starting out? That's interesting because really, I believe they were fears. I think that the things that people are afraid of in writing uh, they should be afraid of. You know, you should, and if, if you're expecting to make a living as a writer and you're afraid that you won't, that's a very legitimate fear because the odds are you won't. Um, and in fact, I think one of the most important things that I would advise is plan for the thing you fear. If you're really afraid that you won't make a living as a writer and you want to be a writer, start to plan for how you're going to be a writer when you don't make a living at it. Because I ran into that often. <laughs> Um, even after I was a professional writer, because even when you're a professional in the union, a highly paid writer, it can dry up, it can go away, things can change. Um, and the important thing that you want to do is think, first of all, would I stop writing if I couldn't make a living at it? If so, I don't know that you're going to 
be a very happy and be a writer because you you need to be able to want to do it no matter what and then okay so i will be a writer and work early in the morning before my job as a pharmacist or i will be a writer and be a, as i was an office temp for 12 years or i will be a writer and live with my family for the rest of my life whatever it is you know there's no right or wrong way to do this there's no actual path and so you've got to figure out what makes sense for you and one of the most important things about that is to recognize what you're afraid of and try and plan for the reality of it if it's going it could happen you know and and i think that that actually is what helps a lot is to say well all right if i don't make it in hollywood would i still keep writing and the answer should be yes it may not be i keep writing scripts or maybe i'll write scripts for podcasts that i can produce myself or i'll write for theater or i'll make graphic novels whatever it's going to be face the fear and be realistic about it um that that was actually what got me through um that that big fear am i going to be able to do this there there's so many fears to to being an artist aren't there because i was just thinking that's one but then there's the fear of am i any good maybe i'm not good enough and once again the answer has to be well you're going to be as good as you're going to be i mean being afraid of it is not going to make you better <laughs> so you might as well just be how you are and see where that lands you. Um you can't actually change many things. There's a lot of things that make it easier or harder for each of us and every one of us is different and for me the fear of you know will this be accepted will this be liked at a certain point it's probably better to look at that fear and say would i keep writing this even if everyone hated it and if you can find something that you would write then that's probably the thing you should write. um find a way to do the thing that you do no matter what um that's that the because the rest of the fears for most of us like nobody's going to cut your hands off if you write badly you know i mean except in certain places probably right, right. <laughs> but hopefully but not for here those of us who yeah. are who are not living there um you know it's these are nice problems to have and artists should take a deep breath and recognize that you know the the worst thing that could happen is you don't make a fortune oh gee you know if you write operas or poems you would never even occur to you screenwriters have this weird idea that they're supposed to be rich and famous um that is not actually an artist's lot most 99.9% of screenwriters are not rich and famous 99% of working screenwriters are not even rich you know it's it's And, and certainly in the the scale of what we think of as that percentage of of that's what a screenwriter is um most screenwriters don't get to choose what they work on um and and honestly what you're doing is balancing you're saying i want to get paid for writing but i also want to write what's in my head well you're not going to get to do both of those most of the time if you write what's in your like i wrote I was a working screenwriter for 25 years and non-stop great jobs exciting I almost was never writing a project that I conceived of I was being hired by people who wanted my talents and my skills for their project and that was paying the rent and and you know the best day job you'll ever have and some of the most wonderful experiences I've ever had but at the I was not writing what I could imagine so I had to do that on the side 
almost none of those projects went anywhere. People would read them and say, wow, that's great, we can't make that. So, you know, that's success. <laughs> that's, you know, is that, is that the picture that you all have out there of your success? No, everyone has the success picture of those two or three writers that we see interviewed who are like, oh yeah, well, I decided I was gonna do this project and I called them up and I told them I was doing it and they gave me a million dollars and I went and wrote it. That's just not how, that's, you know, that's winning the lottery. That's getting hit by lightning, being born into the royal family. You know, if, if you're lucky enough that that happens, great. But most of us should plan for the thing we fear. And were your fears greater at that time to make a living as a writer or would you even get another temp job? Because, you know, with the temping, <laughs> sometimes you don't know if you're going to be working from week to week or, yeah. hi, we don't need you anymore. And you're like, okay, did I do something? You know, and which fear was greater at that time? That's actually a great question because it brings up the issue of sustainability. Um, and by which I do not mean, you know, we recycle our projects. I mean, you have to be able to have a sustainable life to be an artist, a creative person of any type. And so you need to be able to separate those and say, I need to deal with the fear of not paying the rent and not having food and not having a good relationship and all those life things that are very important. They have nothing to do with your work. And your work should not be making the save on those. You should not be saying, I have a crappy relationship, but one day I'm gonna be such a famous writer that they'll love me anyway. That's a bad plan. Have a good life and then write. Uh, have a life that you can live whether or not you ever become a rich and famous writer. And, and if that is a small life, good, whatever, as long as it's a sustainable life, as long as you can take care of yourself, then you can apply yourself to the process of writing. An artist, they're an artistic problem, the problems of am I good enough, is this meaningful enough, all those things, let alone will it make any money, um, which is not really entirely an artistic problem, is a separate thing that you do when you have the space and the health to do it. Um, you first have to take care of yourself. You have to have a place to live and a routine by which you can live fairly reliably and hopefully with some good mental health. Take care of that first. Don't be in debt. Don't put off all the things of your life until you, you know, oh, I'll, I'll take care of that when I'm, when I'm successful. Um, no one's ever successful enough to take care of that. <laughs> that has to come first. And then you make a space for your work and you'll deal with each artistic problem like, what is this scene about? Or is this a good idea that I feel like committing a year to? Those are artistic problems, but they have nothing to do. They shouldn't be how you decide whether or not you're gonna pay your rent. Um, if you get lucky, I mean, honestly, once, you know, if you get into the union and you become a professional writer, you're still basically not going to be asking that question. You're going to be asking, how do I get this job that someone else has done the creative work on and I want to work on their project? Because except for a small, teeny number of people who are showrunners or people who are writing features, which is a very small number now, you're mostly working on a staff. That's a job. It's a job at a corporation. Um, a great job at often a great corporation, and it's really cool, but it's not an artistic problem. Um, artistic problems should be solved with artistic things, and life problems should be definitely solved with life things, not with artistic solutions. 
Can you tell us the reasons why being a screenwriter is impossible? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I, that actually, the, in many ways, I would advise no one to be a screenwriter. It is by far one of the dumbest arts to try and be in, other than maybe large-scale architecture. There, the first thing about screenwriting is you're never getting to finish the work. In other words, you get to finish the script, but it's not available to an audience until it's made by other people. So basically you're creating something in order to give to a bunch of other people so they'll create another thing, and frankly, a different thing. The thing that's based in your script is a production and it will change in many ways. Um, so if you really are like, I can totally picture this movie in my head and that's why I'm writing it, get over it. It will never ever be like that. Even in the greatest of circumstances where things are better than you want, it will never be as you imagine. But honestly, I believe that's the creative process itself. When you imagine a script, it actually comes out differently than you first imagined it or what you think. The process of transforming anything into a concrete work out of an abstract thought changes it. And honestly, when a reader reads it, it's gonna change again because when you say he wore a red tie, they're gonna picture a different red tie than you're picturing. Um, and you have to be able to accept that. You have to be able to accept that the script is a a piece of a project that you will not have any control over. So that's number one is unless you really like that process of doing something for other people to work from, it's frustrating. Um, and I know actually a lot of writers get very irritated at actors and directors, which is too bad because they should be more respectful of the other arts. But they're like, they didn't say that like I thought they should, like I know how that line should go. And that's not how it works. The line goes how it goes in their mouth. The actor has to be free to act the way they would act it. And if you're depending on them saying it exactly the way you imagined it, which is frankly not on the page, it's not gonna happen. So writing, screenwriting, is more frustrating than most types of writing. But then, not only that, among most types of writing, you have less control because you don't own the copyright to your work. If you're a novelist or a playwright or any other kind of writer, you own your work. They can't, somebody may put pressure on you, we, you know, we won't publish it unless you change it, but they actually can't change it. If you write a script and you sell it to a company for various reasons having to do with the ability to unionize back in the 30s, screenwriters gave up their right to own their creative work, which means when you hire on to write something, they can fire you and have someone else rewrite it and you cannot do anything about it. And that always sounds like, oh, that'll be fine, I'll live with that. It hurts. <laughs> everyone gets fired, everyone gets rewritten. Most of my career was rewriting other people and I had to be aware of the fact that somebody out there is grinding their teeth and cursing my name when if I do well. <laughs> Um, so screenwriting is just a tough business. Then you get to the fact that for most writers now, you're gonna be working on a staff of a show, which means it's not even your idea. You are one of a bunch of people contributing ideas and the actual writer of the show, the creator, the showrunner, is going to be saying yes to that, no to that. Uh, that line is good, that line is good. We'll put them together. You may get creative satisfaction. You may be doing grunt work. You may also, I mean, on a feature I wrote, there was an introductory scene of a character um, 
that I just hated the way the producers wanted this character to be introduced. They, they thought she was cute and I thought she was reprehensible. <laughs> and I kept on saying, do you really want her to say that? And they're like, yeah, we think it's funny. And I was like, I didn't have an HR. I had to write the scene the way they asked for it or I would be fired or someone else would be hired to replace or rewrite that scene. That's not what most people picture as being an artist. It's not what most people picture as being a writer. Um, but I can go on. <laughs> the number of reasons that you shouldn't be a screenwriter are enormous. The reasons that most people want to be screenwriters are misleading. First of all, they think, and it's true, you are very, very highly paid if you are a working screenwriter um, in the unions and the studio system, the network system. Um, that is a very small percentage of the people who are trying to be writers. So it's like saying, I want to be a baseball player and you're imagining I'm going to be major league. Most people are not going to be major league. The question is, would you stop playing baseball then? And I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine saying, I want to be an artist, but only if they'll pay me first. That's, that's not how generally arts should work. Um, most people imagine that screenwriters have a, a, a get to, people come to the writer because honestly, and this is a problem of the screenwriting industry, um, you know, the, everyone who teaches screenwriting, they're all saying like, it all begins with the script. The script is so important. And you get all these actors and directors who are saying like, you know, and it's true. They choose a good script to work on. And it's like, we couldn't do this without the script. And wannabe screenwriters are like, I'm so important. And I promise you, you're not. They are going to change your work. They are going to misinterpret your work. That's just part of the job. You are providing a beginning to someone else's creative process. And so that's a hard thing to almost every screenwriter I know is looking for a creative outlet. <laughs> <laughs> they're looking for, they're writing novels on the side or plays or they're painting or whatever. Um, and you wouldn't think that that's what being a successful screenwriter is. But truthfully, it is. It's a, it's a job. It's a glorious job. And when it works right, you have these amazing experiences where talented people take your work and they like your work and they do stuff and it works. And then it goes out to a big audience. And that's a little tiny slice of the experience. Um, the things I've had made were amazing. They're only two, 3% of what I actually worked on. Most of what I worked on, no one will ever hear of. It's trapped in some company's vault somewhere or in my drawer because no one bought it. And I'm talented, I'm good, I'm successful, I'm in the union, I'm highly paid, and most of what I write is rejected. So yeah, be a painter if you can, because at least you get done, you have the finished painting. <laughs> um, but the flip side of that, so that I don't just discourage the heck out of everybody, uh, the flip side is if you get good at it, you learn certain skills about narrative and character that are invaluable no matter what else you try to do creatively. If you want to be a director, it's great to know what screenwriting really is, what a scene and a character really are. Um, it's very important to understand how much the character's motivation, the character's goal, the thing they're trying to do, that's crucial. And if you're writing a novel, 
It's just as important. And if you're writing a graphic novel or a video game, whatever it is, those basic ideas about a character wanting something and having a difficult time getting it, that is the center of any kind of narrative creativity. And screenwriting pushes that harder than most. If you can learn it in screenwriting, you can do it anywhere. So it's sort of good to learn to be a screenwriter because then you got a skill set. If you decide to work in video games, great. You're going to be really, really set. And when you were temping in New York City, were you attempting to be an author or it was when you wrote that play and then you saw it was sort of Goldman-esque and you thought, let's do screen? No, ever since I was like a kid, I, when I see something, I want to do it. Like paint, I was painting for a while. I was drawing, I was, I was writing plays. Um, I was trying to direct movies. I was trying to direct movies on Super 8 silent film, which is, means I had to actually learn how to make silent movies. So I like to say I came up in silent film. It was in the 1970s, but that was all they had then. If you were going to make, if you're a high school student, and you want to make a movie, they had eight millimeter home movie cameras. I would make silent movies. Um, I tried to write novels because I love novels, uh, plays because I love plays. I, I have a dangerous desire to do absolutely anything I see. Um, so no, I was, I was always doing all of it and I would sort of shift my focus depending on what was practical. When I was in high school, I got tired of silent movies. It was frustrating to not have any dialogue. Um, but high school, they had plays. So I started to write plays. Um, High school and college, I did plays. I got out of college. I was sort of thinking of writing plays, sort of thinking of writing novels. But screenwriting, I thought, that would pay for all of them. If I could get screenwriting jobs, I could afford to do everything else. And then for 12 years, I was an office temp and couldn't afford to do anything <laughs> except write in my off time. Um, but the theory always was I was going to do it all, and screenwriting was just the most lucrative which is what everybody thinks. And, and, you know, yeah, for the major leagues, it's very lucrative. For the rest of us, it's not. And you should really want to do it. You should love doing it, even if no one pays you. I'm wondering if being an office temp for the 12 years that you did it, and then doing the writing on the side or in free time, fueled you because if you'd had a more comfortable job where maybe money wasn't an option and trying to book work, maybe you would have given up on the screenwriting? I don't think I, just personally, the way I'm built, I would have, I, I, I frequently gave up on jobs <laughs> rather than, than have them interfere with my, what I thought was my career. Um, but I do think that it is, I think that life can really challenge people trying to be artists, that, that the demands of real life, it's hard, it is hard to, build a way to get some time and to, and to feel it's worth it when it's an abnormal thing to do. It's not, it, most people aren't doing it and most people's lives don't require it. Most people have perfectly fine lives without writing a novel or <laughs> a screenplay or doing, you know, whatever it is that, that an artist wants to do. And, and I think it's important to recognize that you are doing something a little offbeat and that the most important thing I think you can do is find a way to comfortably do it in the spaces you have to do it in, whatever they are. There are some people who would rather work for six months and then take two months off 
and have the, the two months to really work. Um, and other people would rather work an hour a day or every other weekend or whatever it is. You have, to, you have to look at yourself. You have to see what's productive for you. There's no right or wrong. Um, the, the novelist Simenon, this French mystery novelist, um, thriller novelist, he used to write in intensely short bursts. He would, he would plan out a novel and then reportedly he had a, a separate house built in his backyard because he could. And he would go to this other house and he would not talk to his family. They would drop the meals at the front door. And for like two weeks, and he wrote short novels, um, he would be like, don't bother me, I'm writing. And he would go in and then he would come out with a novel a couple weeks later, and then he would live his life. And then next time around, he would go back in. That's fine. There's other people who, you know, just like me, office temping, you know, half hour here, half an hour there at other people's desks. Or like I happen to be a morning person, so I would get up extra early and work in the morning before work. But don't discount the amount of pressure that real life puts on your art. And I would say the thing to do is adapt your art to fit that life. You know, if you, um, I've like thrown all these references around. Uh, the painter Matisse, um, when he got older, he couldn't stand at his easel and paint anymore. And he ended up um, doing these cutouts. He would take paper and cut out figures and they became gorgeous artwork called the, the cutouts. Um, there's a book called Jazz and a lot of other work. He stopped painting. He couldn't physically paint anymore. He shifted his creativity to something that he physically could do. Um, that, I think, is a really good lesson for everyone. It's like, if you can't find the time to do it the way you think you should, like I thought I had to have an eight-hour free day with a lot of iced tea and music playing, and I found that it was better to write little tiny slices, even just a sentence or a paragraph. If you keep doing a sentence or a paragraph, you will eventually get whatever it is you need. If you wait till you have the whole day free, you may never. Um, so that, that sort of is what I think you have to do in the face of that inevitable conflict. And that conflict even happens when you're a professional writer. I would run into the problem of, you know, I'm working on a, a project, a, a show or a movie or something. I had a project I was dying to do. And sometimes I'd have to like take a break from my writing job. So it's like my job was writing, but I had to stop to do a little indie film that I wanted to do. And so I didn't take work for as long as I could afford. And then I would go back to work. Everybody has this problem. The important thing is to really pay attention to what is productive for you. If that's writing a little bit at a time, if that's writing for short bursts, a lot, whatever works. I just wasn't sure if however painful or maybe not so painful some of these temp jobs were, I know some temping can be great and some can be probably excruciating. Did that fuel you the painful moments to keep going? And also too, you're around people that this is their life. They're like lifers at this company. And did you say, I don't want to be that guy? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, it's sort of, I mean, to a certain extent, this, may, this sounds horrible. 
I generally look around and say, I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> so I think, okay. so what a terrible Just go thing to, the to admit. Store, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but what it did do was inform me about all the parts of life that I didn't know to find out what it's like to work in this type of place and that type of place. I worked in a lot of different places. And in fact, the first novel I wrote was about a wannabe screenwriter who was an office temp. So I guarantee you nothing Nothing gets lost on a, a, an artist who's making his way in the world. You gotta be absorbing all of it and writing it down. How did you take control of your creative fate? I think recognizing that the only thing an artist truly controls is the work itself. And that is not an original thought to me. Many far better artists have said it. You can't control whether your work sells, whether it is popular, even People who have sold and had hits will find themselves doing something and it flops. That's just predictable that that will happen. So if, if they can't control it, if they can't guarantee a hit, if they can't guarantee that people like it, how should we? There's no way for anyone to know how things are going to work out creatively. And the way that you become a happy artist and a productive artist is to give up worrying about it. You say, I am gambling. I am rolling the dice on this thing because I like it, because I think it's fun, because I think other people will like it. Um, I think that's a big part of it, just saying, I am completing this because I want it complete. It has nothing to do with whether or not someone else will like it. You should, at the same time, adjust your expectations. If you are writing about a very obscure topic or in an obscure genre, um, then don't expect a big budget. Plan the, one of the things I had to learn was, if I want to write something weird and offbeat, write it so that I can do it myself with a video camera and a couple of actors that I get together. Learn how to do things DIY. Learn how to you know, work within the limits that you can control, and then you're controlling your creative fight. And then if somebody likes it, great. If somebody doesn't like it, at least you did it. And you're more likely to do the next thing better from having completed work and put it out there and seeing the response. There is nothing like it for an artist to see people respond to your work. And it's one of the things that screenwriters get to do very infrequently. Most working screenwriters, most of their jobs, they don't get out to the public. A lot of people do drafts of things that don't get made. Now you, you do that less because most people are working on shows. When you work on a show, they don't hire you if they're not going to make it. But um, the experience of doing your work and putting it in front of an audience, starting the work, finishing it, and presenting it is the most important education you can get. There is nothing else that, that replaces it. So the more you can do that without asking someone's permission, without waiting till someone says, well, this will make me a lot of money, so I will invest in it. Because people don't, people don't put money into artworks because they like them. Mostly they put money into artworks because they think it'll make them more money. So if you do something that's good but not profitable, you won't get to make it. It's better to do something that's good and can be made really, really cheaply and then you can make it, nobody can stop you. And if you don't feel like directing it yourself, somebody who does know how to work low budget will be able to make it. So completing projects is very important to you, is it? Completing the process, the artistic process, is the 
best education you can get. Um, if you can write 10 scripts and finish them and ideally at least get a reading of them, but, but really the best thing to do is to shoot them. Find a way to get someone to shoot your script, make it shorts, whatever. That will teach you more than any other education about screenwriting. And if they're bad, so what? You know, do it in such a way that if you lose your money, it's not the end of the world. How did you get your first Hollywood writing job? It was a, a fluke, a freak occurrence. Um, I, it was actually a script that I had written 10 years before. It was my first script and I had gotten an agent with my first script. I had gotten very lucky. I knew someone who knew someone who showed it to an agent who picked me up as their client, but they could not get me. I, there had been a very small option during the 10 years. Other than that, I was office temping and uh, administrative assistanting and doing some development work for indie companies. And I was beginning to think I should stop. I should just, I was actually planning to become a teacher, like maybe a high school teacher or a college teacher if I could, because at least I would have summer vacations to write. Um, it was always, what can I do to support my writing? They, that never stopped. But the idea of becoming a screenwriter stopped because I was like, why keep beating my head against the wall? I had written a bunch of scripts. I had an agent. I, if I wasn't making it, maybe I should quit. Um, but the, the first script I had written, all of my scripts were well-liked by the people who read them. They just were like, this is really good. We just can't make it for a billion reasons. There's always a billion reasons why people can't do things. Um, but a, an independent producer, who really loved one of my scripts, and I had done some rewrites with her. Um, her name was Mae Wuthridge, and she um, took a job at Tribeca Films when it was just starting. And um, she had to say that she was stopping her independent career and going to work for Tribeca. But she had the opportunity, uh, she met with someone who worked with Billy Crystal, who was looking to work with De Niro on uh, what turned out to be analyzed this eventually after I failed them. Um, but they, they were looking to work together and May slipped them my script. Uh, and they loved it. And they said this, this would work very well. And so all of a sudden, Tribeca had to pick me up as <laughs> like, oh, I guess we'll pick up his script to, to take. The... So all of a sudden from being about to quit, I was working with big Hollywood stars and my agent, Lisa Calamaro, arranged a fabulous option and first step deal. And all of a sudden I didn't have to work temp for a year while I did rewrites on that project, which went so fast downhill and <laughs> died completely. And they, um, they wanted changes that I didn't know how to make. And I had worked for 10 years learning how to write what was in my head. And I had never learned about the part of Hollywood writing where somebody says, change that. That wasn't even on my radar. And this was a long time ago. This was in the, the late 1980s. It just never occurred to me that like someone would say, as they did, it was the story was about a divorcing couple, a couple who had gotten divorced and remarried and um, divorced again and over political differences. And then the guy gets involved in espionage and politics and things. And so their divorce, the topic of their divorce becomes the subject of a thriller. Um, and so it was sort of a thriller romantic comedy. And the note was, can you take out the divorce? 
And, and it was a completely legitimate note in one way. If you were a flexible Hollywood writer who understood how to rethink things, there are ways to do that. And I actually did that later on another script where I took out what I considered the center of the story. At the time, I had never had that question raised. And I tried so hard. I, I was just like, I, I got to do this. This is my big break and I'm blowing it. Um, but I couldn't. I wrote an entire script. I've actually, it's the only thing I've ever written that I have never looked at since. It's 30 years now. I wrote it. I literally cried through much of the writing. <laughs> like I was a, a basket case because I was writing something that I didn't know what the center was. Because for me, the center of this story, the reason that everyone was doing something was because of this couple trying to get back together. When you take that out, all you've got is a bunch of people chasing each other um, in funny ways, but still wasn't enough to make a scene. Um, I wrote a script. I have no idea if it's readable, <laughs> but I got immediately fired. Uh, the script went on, on the shelf and they hired new writers. Um, and for three years, they held on to it and De Niro and Crystal wisely moved on, did analyze this. It was a good choice on their part. Um, and at the end of that three years, I got my script back, which was cool because I had been well paid to let them have it for three years. Um, I had never seen any of the rewrites that were done after I did it. So therefore I was, I was allowed to take everything I had done. That was my property. The script, I, the draft I had done for them was their property because they paid me for it. But the option was over and I just started sending it out again. And I, so many people loved it and got so close to production so many times. Um, but what it taught me was the thing that I thought writing was about, which is you imagine stuff and you get it down as good as you can and then they pay you and they make it. That's not how the industry works. The industry works that you do all that stuff and then you start to collaborate with other people. And if you can't do that part, if you can't learn how to use those same creative skills on demand for things you may not think are great, then they'll find someone who can. Does, does that sound depressing? It's not meant to. It's meant to, it's meant to say, learn the mechanics of the business so that you can do the job. That's, that's the message I hope is being sent there, is that there is the magic of creativity and then there's the magic of being skilled and knowing how to do the job no matter what gets thrown at you. Well, I think it's very important that you bring up that story because so many ideas of something sound great. And then when you learn what they actually are, it's much, much different. So that's just fascinating. So it was a year that you had to rewrite that or that was a year process? It was a year of, <laughs> actually, this is, it's a funny story, so I'll tell it. Uh, it's embarrassing. Um, I got, once I took out the center of the story, I didn't know what the story would be. And I, what I do is that when I don't know what I'm going to write, I just riff. I think of everything I can, I brainstorm. It could be this, it could be that. You know, we're on a submarine. It could be the submarine's at the bottom of the sea. It could be that the submarine got moved to dry land. What, you know, everything I can possibly think, I try and get it down on paper. There's no such thing as a bad idea until you figure out what you're trying to accomplish with it. Anything's possible. So I had this huge list of possibilities of this story and I didn't know which one they wanted and I was writing for them. So um, I made it into a board game. 
I actually, I was working as an office temp still, so I had access to like a laminating machine and everything. And I made a board and it was like, it was like the game of life where you go along a path, but it, this had like multiple branching paths for each story. And, and I tried to lay out all the different story outlines as a board game with like cards, you know, like if you pick this, you go in this direction. It was the most elaborate, creative, stupid thing I've ever done. And I brought it to Billy Crystal. <laughs> I got an appointment, I flew to Los Angeles, I gave it to him and I said, this is your story outline. <laughs> I don't know which one you want. And he was really gracious about it. And he was, he was great. He was like, you know, well, now I have something to put on the wall of my office. <laughs> uh, but now we actually have to write the script. You know, have to work on it. And he gave me advice and I worked on it and I did a draft and it was all fine. But that was how little I understood the job. The job, by the way, is making choices. <laughs> the point is when, I, when you lay out the 15,000 possible stories, you have to make a choice. Everything is a choice. Every choice has a price. You have to learn to get comfortable with making choices over and over and over again. Everything in creative work is, I'm going to choose this and not that. If I choose this, that means that I can't have a happy ending. If I choose this, it means I can't talk about communism versus capitalism. You know, whatever it is that you want to do, it's a choice. And when you make that choice, certain things fall away, but other things become stronger. That's the creative process. And everyone gets very afraid of that. What if I make the wrong choice? The coolest thing is for a writer is to get comfortable with, you know what? It's a choice. I'm going to make it. I make it judging. I know that the producers want this. Well, no more choice. That's what I'm doing. If you don't know for sure, you take, you take the choice and you follow that path. You're gambling. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. But it's better to make the choice and be creative and try and find your solutions than to try and do both. That's the one thing you can't do. Got to make a choice and you have to live with the price. When they asked you to take out which, what was the center of the story, which is the couple getting divorced and getting back together, did they didn't tell you what to replace it with? They didn't know. They didn't when people know. give you notes, they don't know how to fix it. They, they just like, you know, that seems, seems a little wrong. Or sometimes they'll know how to fix it, but it's not what you thought would be. Like, you may have a better one. It doesn't matter. What matters is that everyone is going to see things differently. And most notes are, this isn't working. Not do this. <laughs> if they were do this, then it's like, oh, I'll do that. Um, most notes are, that's not making sense, or that's too slow, or that's too fast. But how you actually solve it, that's your task. And so for you, that was so new. It never occurred to me. <laughs> it was, you know, people didn't know that much about screenwriting in the late 80s, early 90s. Like, the, it wasn't as much of a thing. People didn't do it as much as they do now. Now everybody writes scripts. Um, and frankly, everyone should, because now everyone can make them. Um, but at the time, the experience of being a professional writer was not very well known. Um, there were only a handful of books. And in fact, the first time I came to LA, um, I was in, my agent had come out and she had set me up with meetings and everyone said to me, your work is good. You could work here if you moved here, um, but you would be, have to get used to writing things that didn't get made because at the time, that was how development worked. They would develop 50 scripts and make one which meant 49 writers were writing a script that was going to be put on a drawer and never seen again. 
and they would be highly paid and they would be well respected and maybe one of them would get lucky at one of your scripts would, would hit. But you never knew. Some people had a full career never getting anything made. Um, and that blew my mind. I was like, I'm not going to work a whole year on a script and not have anyone see it. Which of course, that's the business. That's the job. Um, but at the time, I didn't know. I had no clue. And it took me a while to process that and to recognize that as a day job goes, pretty cool. You learn a lot on it and you get paid to do the thing you love. But it may get put on the shelf. You may never see it again. When you came back to them with other ideas which could be the center of the story, did they not like it or that was the board game? All right. This is... The, the process by which this happens is that the people who are in charge, like if you're a star or a director and you're supervising writers, you know that you're not a writer. And so you just try to guide them as some are better than others. Um, and it's, it's the writer's job to translate the notes. That's part of being a professional screenwriter is recognizing that people are going to tell you stuff and you have to figure out what I believe is you have to figure out how to turn it into scenes. Everything about screenwriting is how to think in scenes. If you can figure out how to make a scene out of an idea or a desire or whatever it is that somebody says, then you can be a professional writer. And um, so very often the people in charge will say like, honestly, you know, I know what end result I want, but I don't know how to get there. That's your job. Um, so that was, a lot of the notes were like that. And in fact, I said, <laughs> I said, here's the thing. When it really comes down to it, there's a big, there's a binary choice. There's a this or that, you know, is it a, this ending or that ending? And the note was, well, could it be both? <laughs> what are you going to do? So eventually I just chose. I actually think this board game is kind of cool. But well, it was I great. Think... I wish, I, I don't know if I have a copy of it. I think I gave him the only copy. It's kind of a neat idea. I mean, if someone had the time to make the board game, that, that would be Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, essentially it's create your own story, which is now a completely legitimate creative project. You know, you could, you can, you know, digitally, you can make a story that you could do that with. I th it's called a video game, you know, and um, so I just was decades ahead of my... There you the, go, yeah, right. I, was, yeah. I should have been designing games. <laughs> do you think things have changed in Hollywood in the past five years? Everything has changed uh, in the past five years. The, I, I personally believe that the changes happening right now in the entertainment industry are the biggest since the invention of film back in 1905. Um, even television, coming of television, the coming of, of home media, had, did not disrupt the, the system as much as the events of the, the digital technology changes. Um, if you don't mind me getting into that, one reason is because when film began, they built up a bunch of companies in the 1920s in the silent era, and those became the studios. And the studios sort of ran the world for the next decades. Um, there were only a small set of studios, and they all essentially worked in the same field, and they all owned the same theaters. That system eventually incorporated television. At first they thought television would be a threat, but then they simply moved television into their system. The studios ran so many things in television. Um, when the digital revolution happened, new companies came in and instead of 
buying a studio and saying, keep doing what you're doing. They built their own studios based in entirely different philosophies. Um, and they also built their own distribution companies. Because you have to remember, the entire movie industry was, is a distribution industry. The movie studios were, stu were film distributors. They made movies in order to have something to distribute. And um, the most important thing to them was distribution, because that's where the people pay money to get the product. Distribution is where the money is. And with streaming services, they simply opened up a whole new avenue of distribution that cut the studios out of the business. They took the business away from the studios. And as a result, everything changed. The, the people running it, the philosophies by which they ran it, everything has changed and it's broken up because the ability to choose what you're watching, the ability to meter how things are watched, all of these things are changing what gets made. Um, as a result, everything is sort of broken up into each company has its own plans, its own philosophy, and they are buying and producing according to what they want to do. They're not doing it according to some unified industry philosophy of this is what's a hit. Um, Furthermore, a lot of the technology companies, their principle is, if somebody else is already doing something, we have to do something very different. That it was never like Paramount was like, oh, you know, they're doing this kind of movie, so we'll never do that kind of movie. That's not how that worked. They all did the same kind of movie. And so you could just say, I'm gonna make a Western because everybody's making Westerns. Now, every company, every streaming service, they're constantly changing what they want. So you can't plan on, ah, I can write this and it will be sold. That doesn't happen. It has to be a magical combination of you being good at your writing and the company having the desire to make that thing. And the only way that you can make that happen is doing your part of it. You do the good work and you put it out there. There's a lot of places out there. Hopefully one of them will pick it up. That's all you can do in the face of this new system, which is no longer unified around one set of objectives. Do you think people realize that the rules that they've been living by are no longer there? No, I think, um, I, I don't know if this is copyright, but you know Wile E. Coyote, when he runs off a cliff and there's a section there where he's running in thin air with his legs spinning, but he's still going straight ahead. And as far as he's concerned, he's on solid ground. I believe that is where we are, <laughs> which is most of the people who are working in the industry and most of the people who are teaching about the industry are operating from pre-digital philosophies. They're like, this is what a story is. This is how a thing gets sold. And in fact, we're all on thin air and we're gonna drop. I, we may have a parachute, we may get a glider. I'm not saying we're gonna smash. I'm just saying the ground has shifted under our feet. And so the concept of, Three acts, the concept that a movie is uh, the, the story unit. These have all changed. A, sto a story can be in 78 parts. A story can be in six half hours. In each of those is gonna have a different kind of structure. How can you possibly talk about a universal structure or a, a mythic paradigm that's going to fit all of those? I believe the only thing that fits all of those is an understanding of the basic tools of writing a narrative for people to film, which means understanding that you've got characters who are trying to accomplish something and they, they operate in scenes. 
The one thing I think is true still of all uh, filmed entertainment is that it works in scenes. And you're gonna need to understand how scenes work. Every character who enters a scene has a desire to accomplish something. They are in that scene for their own reason. And if you uh, learn how to write those scenes, you learn how to write a character's objective, and at the end of that scene, something has changed or frustrated them, and so they move into the next scene with that next objective. And when you outline that whole thing into six half hours or 72 hours or an hour and a half, whatever it is, that basic principle of, of drama, of storytelling, is, is what you should get good at. How do you define story and how do you teach it to clients and students? I think the basic idea of a story is going to be that you are following a character or characters. It is entirely possible to tell a story of multiple characters. You don't only have to tell one person's story. It's nice, you can do it, but um, it's also possible to tell a story with 11 main characters. It takes a lot of work. You have to follow each main character and follow their story all the way through the narrative. But in fact, I believe any story is really about how a character trying to accomplish something runs into other people who either help or harm their intention. It's sort of like um, Isaac Newton's theory of uh, the billiard balls, that they, they once they get set in motion, they will roll in that same direction because they're being pushed by a, a physical force, and I think a character is also doing that. They're, they're trying to get somewhere and they're rolling in a certain direction until either they hit something or something comes along and knocks into them and then that changes their direction, but they're still trying to get to that one place. The physics kind of falls apart there because billiard balls aren't trying to get anywhere. But the idea that things are moving until they run into something else which is also moving is sort of how characters work. Every character thinks they're the main character. If you have your hero walk into a hotel and try and get a hotel room, that hotel clerk, they think they're the center of the movie because they're the center of their story. And this person coming up to them is either getting in their way or they're trying to charm them or whatever it is that they're doing, they're trying to do something. And that interchange is the basic building blocks of story. That's what you call dramatic action. Someone trying to accomplish something which mostly involves interacting with other people. Sometimes the action can be, I have to take this suitcase and put it on a train, whatever, but there'll still be, I have, to, I have a thing I'm trying to accomplish, and that's what story is. I have a thing I am trying to accomplish, I am a character, and I need to get this thing, and it will be a more interesting story if there's something in the way. If <laughs> I am a character, I'm trying to put a suitcase on a train, and I go and I put it on the train and nothing happens, it's a very short, boring story. If they're carrying a suitcase and another person comes and they steal the suitcase, it's more of an interesting story. And it's a more interesting story if that person's got something important in the suitcase. If it's just a suitcase, they can say, oh, somebody stole it. Oh, well, I'll go get another one. Not that strong a story. Um, every story is about a character trying to accomplish something and having an obstacle. And what they do, what action they take in the face of the obstacles is your story. The obstacles don't have to be external. The obstacle can be, I'm really afraid of the train station. I need to get this suitcase to my uncle and he's gonna be at the other end of the train, so I've gotta get this 
suitcase onto the train, but I'm terrified of loud noises. That's a story. The only obstacle is in there, but it's real. So every character is facing obstacles. The obstacles don't have to be physical. They don't have to be another character. They just have to be something that's getting in the way of them trying to accomplish something that's important to them. Can you explain how questions and choices inform the writing process? Writing is a process of questions. That like, if I could, there's a couple of things that I wish I could like get tattooed on the inside of people's eyelids that they knew. Think in scenes and writing is a process of questions. It's not a thing you have to fill out. It's not a form that you have to fit into. Writing is a question, is always a process of having something. It could be just, I wanna write a Western or I wanna talk about how love hurts or I wanna talk about how love saved my life. Whatever it is that you start with, then you start to ask questions. How am I gonna tell this story? Am I gonna tell it through a character who gets it or a story who doesn't get it? Everything is gonna be a choice. Every question that you ask, if you write down that question, how am I gonna tell this story? Who is the main character? Everything is a question and those questions are, who is it about? What do they want? Why can't they get it? What do they do about that? And how does it end? I think I skipped one, but, <laughs> oh, why doesn't that work? Right. Who's it about? What do they want? Why can't they get it? What do they do about that? Why doesn't that work? How does it end? Um, I did a whole video on this called The Six Essential Questions, so I, I explained it better there. But those six questions basically will help you write anything. They'll help you write a movie, they'll help you write a video game, they'll help you write a series, because this, that's the essential thing that you get of how am I going to turn whatever feeling or idea I have into a story is a person who is trying to do something to get something, and there's something in the way. And then eventually something will end it. Either the end will be I don't get it, or I do get it. And whatever they do that they had never tried before is how it ends because if they had tried it before, it would end before. <laughs> so who's it about? What do they want? What do they do? Why doesn't that work? What do they finally do? What is the end? That's storytelling. And it can work for three acts or 27 acts or one act. It always works. It's, it's my go-to set of questions. Um, and then just keep asking questions. Who is it about? It's about a plumber. Where is he from? Just ask who, what, why, where, and just keep asking why. Why is he afraid of heights? Why, you know, why does he love this particular person? Every time you ask a question and you get a specific answer, you're moving closer to writing a scene. What's the easiest way for someone to figure out an enjoyable writing process for themselves? The first important thing about your process is recognizing that it's yours, that there is not a right or wrong way. Um, some people write at night, some people write in the day, some people write in short bursts, some people write in long extended bursts. It, it's, there's no particular better or worse process. The important thing about a process is it's something that you can do relatively easily. For whatever reason, it works for you. And that means you have to spend time paying attention to yourself trying different things and seeing which ones work and which ones don't work and being really honest about that. I personally, I keep doing that, sorry. I personally, um, 
I turned out to write very well in short bursts. I thought I should do more because when I'm writing in a short burst, it's like, holy crap, if I could keep doing this for eight hours, I'd be a miracle. Um, but I can't. <laughs> and I would sit there and I would grind. After the burst was running down, I would grind. And not only would that be unproductive and begin to be disheartening, but I would start to undo my good work. Because when you start to grind in a bad way, you start to doubt, you start to feel bad and you say, well, I must be feeling bad because this work is bad, which is not necessarily the case. It could be that your process is bad. Um, and so what I would do is I would write something really good and then I would grind until I was unhappy and then I would say, oh, that sucks. And then I would write something over it and destroy my own good work. And it took me a long time to pay attention to the fact that I do really well in short bursts. And if I stop when I feel myself starting to lose it and take a break, take a walk, do exercises, whatever, I can then come back and do another short burst. Getting myself to sit down again is rough, but that's the thing I had to teach myself by paying attention to what worked. Um, I've gotten much more productive since I learned my process. It's not for everyone. Everyone will have a process that's dependent on their own inner mechanisms and on their own reality. Some people only have free time on weekends. Some people only get a little bit of free time, you know, in the evenings. And so they have to find a way to work at the time that they are allowed by their life. Um, you have to pay attention to reality and pay attention to your own inner working. And the best way to find out is to do it and see how it goes. It's always better to try and do some work and see how it goes. You'll never get to the place where you absolutely know that you can write and then you start writing. It's always a question of, let me try this, see what comes out. That's the best test of a process. And working these temp jobs, for many other reasons aside from income and people, the study of people, helped you realize that was your preferred style? Forced me because I'm stubborn and I would just keep doing the wrong thing over and over again until uh, circumstances forced me to work in short bursts. And then I was like, wow, that actually is better. Um, trying to be open to your process, trying to pay attention to what actually makes the work good, what feels good. Feeling good is underrated. Like the fact that, you know, you have to learn to write when you don't feel good. For me, having a process that I can say, I always, I have five basic documents that I open, like an outline, a place where I write notes, um, and uh, the, the text itself, and a sort of overview. Um, I'm gonna be doing a video on this actually soon, but that's my personal setup. Everyone has their own. But, but what you need to do is find a thing that, so you always, when you open that notebook, you're not thinking about anything except the contents of the work. You know, ah, this is the outline. The outline is gonna be broken into scenes and the scene lines are gonna look like this and I don't have to think about that. I have to think about what's in the scene. That's the best way to find a process is to get something that works for you. Some people will do it on their phone. Some people will do it. I would advise doing it in some way that it's written down in some form, digitally, on paper, on note cards. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you get it out of your head and into the world in some way that you can set it aside and come back to it. Set it aside, come back to it. Because with almost anything, you're gonna have to. You can't do it all at once. When did you have that aha moment that 
I don't have writer's block and my anxiety was, although it was real, it was just that wasn't my style of writing to, to sit at my desk at my parents' basement or wherever and have the perfect music and, and the iced tea. That, that actually wasn't working for me. It was, it, it was unfortunately not an aha moment. It was an aha couple of years. Okay. <laughs> and I think, I think that that's, a, that's actually sort of a misleading thing that, that our culture has developed from movies. Um, that, that there's a decisive moment and after it you are always changed. In <laughs> stories, that is a very important thing. You need decisive moments when people are changed. But in truth, it's more like a series. And I have a couple seasons <laughs> where I get a little bit of it, then I fall back into my old ways, and then I have some reward or I think of something new. And it, it's a process in which you try to do two steps forward, one step back instead of the other way around because you're trying to head forward. You do a little forward, you fall back, you go a little forward. And, and the main way it always is the doing of it. Just throw something on the paper, even if it's just, and I have done this, I've written a scene where I say, this is the scene where he comes home and is, you know, miserable. And that I just took it out of the outline and I wrote it into the script because the next time I look at it, I, I now am familiar with this process. And I say, okay, I created a scene. The scene is a description. This is where he comes home and is miserable. Now I have to think, okay, how do we see that he's miserable? Ask a question. He sees, we see he's miserable because he takes his dinner out of the refrigerator and throws it on the wall. You know, each thing that you get when you ask a question, to me, it's always a process of questions and a process of writing down the answer. Now I have a scene where a guy comes in, opens his fridge, throws his dinner against the wall. Okay, we know he's miserable. Now I can add a couple of lines, move on to the next scene. Everything that you can do to put a little something down, to create a bit of something for your creativity to hang on to, that's, for me, the essence of the writing process. So if this were a movie, then it would show Glenn as a temp and you know, all right, Charlie, have a good weekend. And then you had like a half hour and then the music plays and you realize, yeah. wow, this is it. And I'm, here I am writing it and, and you're saying- I actually think what we would do in that case <laughs> is we would show that we would cut to the, the imaginary scene, we would play it out. And, and so we would get to catch the, the thrill of the creation by seeing the created magic of this character in the scene. Oh, so yeah. So, I'm sorry, I'm writing now. No, I love it. I love it. So then, so Glenn is the as the I'm writer. sitting there writing, and then we you know cut to or dissolve to. By the way, that's a little thing. Most of the time, a don't write cut to. William Goldman started it. It's a delightful thing in his scripts. Obviously, they're going to cut to. How else are they going to get there? You're wasting page space. Don't say cut to. And most of the time, don't say dissolve to or fade out or anything else because that's their decision. They'll, unless it's really important that you dissolve, just write the next scene and they'll figure out how to get there. Anyway, uh, yeah, get to the Glenn's writing and then show that scene where the character is running to the phone booth in the rain and it's a great scene and people will get so excited by my creativity as a character that they'll want to know what happens next. You say the writing process is about tools and skills, not theory. But let's let's go with theory for one moment. So what theories are stopping a writer before they even start? That's actually a really good question because um, I believe that the theories 
are tools. <laughs> I believe that the, the, all the rules, I'm not saying there are no rules. There are plenty of rules. There are a lot of rules. What there are not is a single set of rules that always works. And so what you need to do is know every possible theory you can cram into your head. You should watch all sorts of different types of stories. You should watch outside in genres outside of the ones you like. You should specifically try to watch things that are things you don't think you'd be interested in. And you should definitely try to read those screenwriting books or, or listen to screenwriting teachers who are teaching very, very different ideas because there are so many out there now. And the answer is each one of them will have very valuable parts, very valuable tools that you can use. And the only thing that you need to have is a really big toolbox, as big as you can get with every possible theory, so that when you're approaching your work, which is really what it's always going to be about, you can say, I have seen a story like this, or I have seen a story like this, but this other story had a different form for it. Or this person said, I should always have my transitions in the middle of the story, or this one said I should always have a conflict at the end of the story. There's so many theories. None of them is wrong. They're all right. They're all there to be used in different circumstances depending on what you're trying to accomplish. So the more that you can learn all the different theories and all the different paradigms and, and story archetypes, that's all good. But nothing will help until you actually sit down and say, I am making the choice to write this particular story, and this story needs this set of rules. Maybe another story needs another set. Maybe I need to pick one rule from this one and one rule from that one. Maybe my, you know, somebody says, you know, save the cat. I happen to believe that there are certain parts of Save the Cat, the, the book, very valuable. Other parts, I can't make head or tail of. And I don't think that you should not read it. I think you should read it and take the pieces that you need. I'm not sure you should always save the cat, but it's good to know that saving the cat is a thing you can do. And I believe that that goes for every screenwriting theory out there. And the best thing that you can do is know all of them so that you can say, hmm, in this one, is this type of character best revealed by saving a cat? Or is this one somebody who's gonna walk away and leave the cat there, and now we know a different thing about them, how do we still like them? Um, so really the most important thing is to take whatever these rules are and apply them to your particular goals, because that's the thing. Not every story has the same goals. Some are trying to amuse you, some are trying to scare you, some are trying to make you think. They're gonna have very different ways of approaching storytelling. The important thing is that you have as many tools as you can, as many skills. You know how to make something funny if you need to, or how to make somebody like a character. By the way, my theory on liking a character is the way that we like a character is that we know what they want. I believe we can really get with a character who wants something horrible. They're not saving any cats. They're murderers or they're trying to take over the world and we can still really care about them because we are understand that they want this thing for their reason and very often that's something that we can care about even though we don't honestly want them to kill all those people <laughs> but 
we get engaged in the story and we follow the characters because we know what they want. My theory. So if we don't know what they, what they want, then somehow do we not trust the character? I personally think we just don't think of them as a character. <laughs> I, I think if you, if you start to pay attention to how you watch characters, I think you'll find out that you're always thinking, what do they want? What are they trying to do? There'll be some form of that. You don't just want to watch someone and say, oh, they have nice clothes. I mean, you'll watch that for a few minutes. Um, but after a while, that person in the cool outfit had better be trying to do something. And people don't try to do something if they don't want something. Because it takes effort to do stuff, and we only do that when we have something we want. If we had that toolbox, let's let's say we put aside the Save the Cat tool, what's one of the most overused, whether it's good or bad, tool, one or two from this toolbox? Um, hmm. We're going to pull it out and make room question. for other stuff. Yeah. Um, I think the three-act structure, it's tricky. There are There is a, a world where... There's units of entertainment, which you watch in one dose. Call them features now, doesn't matter, it could be a short, but, but there's a, a type of story that you watch in one dose. And that does have a three-act structure in the sense that it has a beginning, middle, and end. But the whole set of rules about turning points happening at a certain point in a three-act structure is simply an overused tool. Uh, it came about because movies were in movie theaters and that was about as long as a person could sit in a movie theater. And also, movie theaters wanted to sell a certain number of tickets, so they wanted movies to be of a certain length. A lot of this comes down to business. And honestly, we shouldn't be making our artistic decisions based on the fact that movie theaters wanted to turn over the seats every 90 minutes. Um, now we have some stories that are not three acts. We have some stories that are 30 acts. We have some stories that are one act. Every story, though, will have a beginning, middle, and end. So, in a way, the three-act structure will apply. Even an episode of a larger thing has a beginning, middle, and end. Um, I think that's where the three-act thing came from. Because truthfully, even in theater, they didn't always have three acts. A lot of plays before the, 19th, the 20th century had four acts or five acts. So the three act, save the cat possibly, doesn't mean they're bad or wrong, no, but it's bad. just they're over, they, they, they're used a lot. I'm saying that you need to choose your form. You need to say, I am going to watch a thousand stories and I'm going to break some down. I strongly suggest that if there's something you like, watch it like five times. Watch it until you're not enjoying it anymore so you can start to watch it mechanically and say, how do they do this? And when you do that, stop, uh, like pause, and write an outline of the thing you're watching that you like, and learn how it's structured. And then do that with a bunch of other things, because you'll find out there's nothing consistent. The rules are all over the place. And furthermore, a lot of these rules are like, well, you have your inciting incident, or your you know, beginning twist, or whatever they, everybody has names for them. None of that really matters because then you get into an activity, which is an academic activity, of, of find the part. <laughs> I'm going to name the inciting incident. What really matters is how the audience feels as they're following the story. The audience is not looking for an inciting incident. They're not looking for a, a, a second act reversal. They don't care. They care about the characters. And if you break down the things you love 
and reverse engineer them and outline them, you'll begin to get a sense of how they do it. How many beats does it take before you are worn out of this thing? How long does it go before there's a twist or a turn? The only way you can really become skilled is by breaking down the work and doing it yourself. You know, you can study how to build a car until the end of time, but you need to actually put together a car and make it run, and you probably have to do that a bunch of times before you can make a really great car. How is being an artist very different from being the audience? That is one of the hardest things to get used to, because we all begin as an audience. There, I don't think there's an artist in the world who didn't start by being a fan. Um, we all want to do these things because we liked seeing them, absorbing them. Um, we were the best consumers. And the truth is, the artist never experiences their own work the way an audience will, because they, first of all, you know what's going to happen. You, you can't actually experience it. You have to reverse engineer that whole experience, just like if you were, if you're building a roller coaster, you can't be riding the roller coaster at the same time. You have to actually say, I need a support here and I need a dip here. And you're being very mechanical and frankly artificial about it because you're saying, I want them to get a thrill when they go over that hoop, hump. Um, and, and in order to do that, I'm going to have to have this amount of force up here. And then it's going to have to have a, a tailing out at that point. And it's going to become very mechanical in order to give somebody else the pleasure of riding that roller coaster. Um, that's what you need to do as an artist is to say, I love the experience of going over that hump and then zooming down. Um, and for some reason, I don't crash at the bottom. That's because someone knew how to get out of the free fall that I'm going through. The artist has to stop and learn the mechanics, how you support the track that's going to do that, how you make the story twist and turn and provoke those experiences that you yourself will never have. And when you're actually doing it, you get this weird kind of duality because as you're creating, you usually have a, like a little tiny bit of an audience's experience. You'll be like, I'm actually enjoying the line I just thought of as an audience did. You'll have that for a fraction of a second while you're doing it. Um, and then after that, you have to figure out the mechanics to make that scene work. Um, so you're constantly going back and forth sort of saying, I want to be an audience now. And now in order to get that audience, I got to go back and become the mechanic. And you're constantly cycling through them. You can never really give up being an audience, but you have to also become the person building the ride. The other thing about artists and audiences is that from the finished product, you can never tell how it got made. Uh, one of the things I think artists really should do is try to read or hear podcasts or books about how things you love got made, because you'll always be amazed at how the people who set out to do it did not know that the final result was going to be what we now think of as inevitable. And the, the stories are, are actually, I just read one about Midnight Cowboy. And, and when they brought the book Midnight Cowboy, John Schlesinger, the director and the producer brought the book to MGM, the studio, and they said, we want to do this very dark story about this wannabe hustler going to Times Square. And MGM said, we think this could be an Elvis Presley vehicle and we're going to put in some songs and we'll take out that dark stuff. So, you know, 
uh, on a bad day, MGM could have taken it over and it could have been Elvis Presley in Midnight Cowboy, which would have been something to see. But the point is, when we watch Midnight Cowboy, it never occurs to us how many different things had to go right or had to be learned to make that happen. And having worked behind the scenes, having created things, I can tell you that there are things that I did not know going in, somebody brought it to me. Sometimes whole story ideas were not my idea. In fact, the script I'm best known for, Fracture, wasn't my original script. Someone else had written a very, very good script. The studio wanted to make changes. Someone else was hired after that. Then I was brought in. So many of the plot twists I didn't come up with. I did a lot of the writing that made those plot twists work in that form that it did end up in. But when you watch that movie, you come to me and say, how did you think of that plot twist? The answer is, I read it in somebody else's script and I used it because that's the job. So the answer is, you can't just look at stuff you love and go, ooh, I know how they did that. You'll never know how they did that and you'll never know how your work is going to come out. You just don't. You have to get used to the experience of trying to get something done, doing the best you can, and seeing how it plays. You had talked about something in the artistic process, abstract to concrete to abstract. Mm -hmm. Yes. What is that? Um, that's sort of a follow-up of the artist-audience um, artist issue, which is you, nothing will ever come out like it feels to you. That is part of the art. I don't, I don't think there's any artist who hasn't gotten hopefully used to it because it's part of learning how to do it. Um, one of the things that brought this to me was I was once looking at a Picasso drawing and late Picasso drawings especially are just like, they're like scribbles. You know, it's, it looks sort of like a bull, but how did he know to make the line go, like how did he know to do that? Because it's just a scribble, but it, it's a bull. And I suddenly realized he didn't know. He knew that whatever came out would be interesting. He trusted that. And that's what every artist has to learn, that you don't know exactly how it's gonna come out. You can outline, I outline incredibly thoroughly, and I think I know what's gonna happen. But the truth is that there's going to be a process after that, the creative process, <laughs> good word for it, you're creating something out of nothing. And when that happens, it's going to be something that you're going to discover as you do it. And then you need to shape it and rework it and do all the other things that artists have to do. But the thing in your head, there's this feeling or this idea or this line, and then you put it on the page and then somebody else performs it and then someone else sees it. And in all of those steps, it's not what you thought it was going to be. And the best thing an artist can do is get really comfortable. In a sense, getting comfortable with a, a failure. You're going to fail to get your exact feeling and thought out to someone else. That's, that's life. It will never ever happen that someone gets exactly what you thought it was. But what will happen is that you'll get used to doing that scribble and somebody will go, oh, cool, bull. And that's art. That's the magic of it is that you get used to bringing something abstract into a concrete form and someone else gets an abstract experience out of it. That's, that's something that only art does. It's beautiful. So get used to, sounds like, just experimenting and, and trusting that I may not know where it's going, but 
this kind of feels right. And knowing that that same thing, you could see it, could be changed drastically, and you have to be collaborative and okay with that. Get used to the process. the process. Get used to the experience of doing the thing over and over. If you're playing tennis, you get used to hitting the ball. and You hit it over and over, and then eventually you'll get to where you can control it more. But still, there's going to be a lot of other elements. And what only thing that you can get used to is the process of making the swing. Likewise, the process of thinking of something, writing it in a concrete form, editing it, shaping it, rewriting it, giving it to other people, that process. That's what you have to practice. That's what you have to get to enjoy and feel comfort in. And the more that you do it, the more that you'll get lucky and things will work out. And you'll be like, oh, I think this line is funny. And then you write it down and someone reads it and they, they laugh. That gives you so much power for the next time you do it. Because sometimes it's gonna work and sometimes it's gonna not work. But the more you do it, the more it will work. Two kinds of writing. Creating and shaping? There are two kinds of writing. Um, and every piece of writing uses both kinds. It's not like somebody only does creating and somebody only does the shaping. Every writer has to get used to sort of a, a over and over again process. Um, creating, uh, what I call creating, and it's just the, the stuff that comes out, what some people call the vomit draft or the, um, the experience of just trying to imagine stuff and write down what you think, trying to put yourself in a scene or think what would they say next and write it down. You're accessing something that truly humanity has no idea what it is or where it comes from. I don't know if it's something that other creatures have, but people have this weird ability to make stuff up. Uh, it's essentially dreaming. Um, you Think of a story or a character or a moment or a scene or a line, and you don't, you can't really say where it comes from. Uh, and and it, this is every artist in history has experienced has, has described the same experience of I was trying to write this thing and this line just came to me, this scene, this twist, whatever it is, it just comes to you. And the more that you can get used to the um, need to let it happen, however it happens to create without any judgment at all, without any criticism, without any fear, saying anything that comes out of me at this moment is fine. And to be able to sustain that and do that for a bit of time and get something down and to get used to the experience of making that written down feeling free with the words, even if they're bad, even if, if you're bad at typing, they're going to be misspelled, doesn't matter. What matters is that they, you grab them from that mysterious place and you get them on the paper. That's creating. But then, almost always, it's going to need some shaping, some editing, some rethinking. Writing, rewriting. And that second shaping part is where you say, clean up all the typos, <laughs> break that long sentence into two short ones, Make those two short ones into one long one. That word there, that's really vague. What do I mean when I say baffled? <laughs> baffled is actually pretty specific, but you know what I mean. Um, that you start to think the way someone who's not you <laughs> would read it and whether they would get the experience you're trying to give them. And then you start to be mechanical about it. There's tricks you can use, putting the punchline at the end, putting the setup at the beginning, finding funny sounding words for funny lines. There's all these tricks of the trade. That goes in the shaping part. 
when you're shaping, you're spending a lot of time being critical um, and trying to, when you're critical, what you're trying to do is, I like to think of critical as making the best of, not saying bad. I'm not critical of it. I am, wow, there's a funny bit in that, but this is getting in the way. So critically, I'm going to get rid of the stuff that's in the way of the good. I like the good. What's important about being critical is that you're doing it to improve what it is trying to be, not make it into something else. Um, and certainly not just slam it down. <laughs> the editing part of you, the rewriting part of you is the second part of the process. Usually it goes back and forth several times. Sometimes you get weirdly creative while you're editing a new line comes to you and then you, so you're sort of doing a micro switch, editing, editing, oh, new line, creative, oh, back to editing. And that process goes over and over. Most writers I know, they tend to set aside a separate mood. You know, I know I'm going to have to do seven days of creating, creating, creating. I'm never going to look back at what I wrote. And I'm just going to every day set aside an hour, throw it down and then go you know, make myself a nice lunch. Then for another seven days, I'm going to look at what I wrote, take a big deep breath, start to break it down, start to do the work, stretch a little, go back to it. And that process over and over will make for great writing. Do you think too many writers are focused on positive feedback instead of writing something that can actually be made? That's interesting. Um, actually, I do think that we have developed a script reading industry within the industry. And that has sort of become a kind of, I don't know what the term is for like, if you've got a river and it suddenly gets like a little backwater and things get stuck in there instead of going with the flow, but that's, there is that. Um, people who are writing scripts are unfortunately mostly writing them to be judged by people whose jobs is to read them. That could be professional script readers and critics. It can also be anyone who is an executive or a producer. Their job is to read a script and try and figure out if that script is going to be producible. But still, they're, they're working on the script. Many, many people who are in those fields don't know anything about production. They don't know anything about making a movie. And in fact, um, and when I say movie, I mean movie or show or filmed entertainment of any kind. Um, the most important thing for a screenwriter, because it's a particular kind of writer, is that you are writing for production. There is no value to your writing until it is produced. Someone may pay you money, which is value, in the sense that they think it's going to get produced. But truthfully, the value is if that script can be acted and directed and edited and released. And there's different qualities which are valuable to the people doing the acting, directing, editing, than the readers. And you need to be able to please both because you can't get to the production people without going through the readers. Um, so I would say you need to learn all the advice about how to please a reader and what they're looking for and what they, the rules they have. And everybody tells you different rules, but know as many rules as you can. But still, it's very important to understand what happens when a script gets made. If you can, make it yourself. Write a script for the purpose of making it yourself, just so that you learn what happens 
when an actor has to say lines. One of the things that happens is you'll learn most of the lines that you wrote were probably information. In other words, you were thinking, I need the audience to know this thing, so I'll write a line where somebody says it in some way. But what the actor and the director and the editor need is for the character to need to say something. Totally different. The character has to need to say the information. If they don't need to say it, it's not going to work for the actor and the director. The only way that you can learn that is by having actors and directors work with your script. If you are a DIY type of person, try it. Find a way to, you know, at this point you can do it on your phone. You can get a bunch of actors from the nearby community theater or college, write something that's appropriate to their ability of talent, and try it out. It's going to take you some time, it's going to be some heartache, there's going to be some arguments, but you will learn how your script is transformed by the production process, what works and doesn't work, and that is incredibly valuable to everyone who eventually will make the movie, and if you can learn that stuff, by and you can pretty much only learn it by doing it, then you will be a screenwriter who's making something not just to get approval, but to actually get made and be good. So by running these lines by these actors and filming it with your phone, you're finding out what's filler in the dialogue and what is an actor or character wanting something, portraying that to another character who also wants something. What it really will come down to is you'll learn what dramatic action is, because dialogue is action. When somebody speaks, actually in real life too, you're trying to do something. Like when you go to a counter and say, may I have a pack of cigarettes? Well, don't say that. <laughs> say, say, may I have a club soda? And um, a lottery ticket. <laughs> lottery ticket, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you say that, it's because you're trying to accomplish something. When you say to someone, I love you or I don't love you anymore, it's because you're trying to accomplish something. You're trying to ha make something happen or get something. You're trying to change your relationship with them. You're trying to get something, so them to do something. All dialogue should be action. That's what an actor needs to play and that's what a director needs to direct, is that almost every writer you'll meet, especially the ones who have not been in production, will think in terms of information. This dialogue is conveying this information. And they can make it sound nice, but if it's not actually action, if the character is not trying to change something in that moment, it's not going to play. Um, by the way, the other thing I wanted to say was, I'm a fan of DIY and I think that we should demystify it. The point of DIY filmmaking is mostly not to get your big break and to have it sell for a billion dollars. It's to get experience. It's the, it's the same thing with the, the, the 10,000 hours. You know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell in, um, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the book now. Malcolm Gladwell uh, publicized this phrase, um, outliers, is Malcolm Gladwell's outliers, 10,000 hours is what it takes to become real mastery of any particular thing you're doing. It took me like 30,000 because I'm really stubborn and slow. But um, that process for a screenwriter has to include the production. And um, what happened was the, the indie industry blew up in the, the 80s and 90s over somebody makes a $3,000 movie and it sells a billion dollars and they're great for the rest of their career. 
Um, and so everyone started making movies for that aim. For every one of those that was huge, there were thousands that lost all their money. And the important thing to know about DIY is you're gonna lose all your money. The, you might as well grab a lottery ticket to try and make money off of, of indie filmmaking. But that's not the point. The point is to do the work and get it to an audience, to get in production. And if you don't feel like DIYing yourself, there are people who are wanting to DIY who can't write. And they will love you if you just wanna write and give it to them. So the important thing about that is the same thing that the 10,000 hours taught the Beatles when they went to Hamburg and they had to play God knows, eight-hour sets every day for weeks and weeks on end. Supposedly, that's when they got good. The work they were doing was not necessarily their best work, but they were producing their work and putting it in front of an audience and doing it again the next day. That's the important thing that screenwriters are not given the opportunity to do. You're not going to be given that opportunity, so you should take it yourself. Do it in a nice, safe way. Like I said, if you're a writer and you don't feel like producing, Find people out there. They want good scripts. When you were a temp for those 12 years, was there one story that you really clung to of your own, of your own writing that you thought, this is gonna be it? Or were you constantly working on new things? Well, I did have this one script that kept on getting passed around and people liked for those 10 years and eventually it did sell. So that, that for those of you out there, yeah, 10 years, it can still sell. And frankly, after that 10 years, 10 years after that, it was still being shown and people were showing interest in it. So that's one of the important things that you should remember. When you write something and you're thinking, this will be my break, it might be your break in the sense that people recognize your talent through it and they never make that, but it becomes, quote, a show script. That's a perfectly valuable thing. I got a lot of show scripts. I thought they were gonna be big hits. I thought they were gonna make me a fortune, but they were just something that somebody read and said, wow, you're a good writer. Why don't you write this thing that I think will make money? Um, that's still a valid reason to write a script and the script still exists. You know, somebody doesn't buy it. It's not like it gets burned. Somebody else later on might like it. I'm wondering if we can critique some dialogue of a scene I've written. The scene is set in modern times and it takes place in a HR, human resources department, where our protagonist is Maya. She's a single mom in her mid thirties. Uh, she works as an administrative assistant. She's not one for, I guess what you would call water cooler gossip. She's kind of, you know, head down, works hard. Some of the other employees don't like her but she, she kind of tunes it out. The other person in the scene is Tommy, and he's a young HR professional in his mid-20s. He landed the job out of college, and he's been promoted as he's a diligent worker and committed to seeing the company run smoothly. So Tommy has sent Maya an inner office email and asked her to be at his office. He does not say why in the email. And so the scene takes place where Maya is knocking on the office door of Tommy's, which is a jar. He's at his computer. So Maya says, hi, Tommy. And she knocks. Hey, Tommy. Sound effects. Cool. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and there's uh, Tommy typing. I don't actually have the typing sound. Um, oh, hey, Maya. Um, thanks for stopping by. Have a seat, please. Uh, Maya sits down in the office chair facing Tommy's desk. Her body language is a bit tense. Tommy speaks, so, and he quickly gets up from his chair and shuts the office door. Okay, Maya, thanks again for being here. Listen, Tommy pauses to reflect. Maya le leans in. 
everything good? There's a little bit of an inflection in her voice, which indicates worry. Tommy clears his throat and breathes in. <clears throat> Maya, as you know, our company policy states that all employees' electronic communications are monitored from time to time so that human resources can be certain that said employees are in accordance with company rules and regulations. Maya responds, okay. Tommy, from October 25th, Maya, to January 25th, our IT department noted that within this span of time, you had spent an excessive amount of time on non-work-related websites during your agreed upon hours of employment with us using a company computer, which is located at your desk. And Maya interrupts Tommy. Wait, what? What are you talking about? Tommy raises his voice slightly louder. As you may remember, Maya, from the company handbook that was given to you on your first day of employment with us, which you signed, all computer time within an employee's work hours should be strictly work-related. It was noted, and he pulls out his little handy-dandy pen, clicking it, it was noted that you visited the following websites on these dates, and he turns around a piece of paper that's printed and denotes with his pen each incident. Maya looks at the paper in disbelief, and she sees on the paper a timestamp, a URL of the alleged website, the make, model, and operating system of her work computer. Scanning the paper and shaking her head, she kind of exclaims, I don't even have an account on this social media site, and I've never been to this blog. I don't know what this is. Tommy exhales and pauses. Therefore, Maya, in violation of company policy, we're really sorry, but we're going to have to let you go. Maya responds, okay, wait, stop. I noticed the other day there was a login page to my computer and the username was someone else's. I don't go to these websites. I don't even go to these websites on my off hours. So what are you talking about? Gets defensive. Tommy interrupting. Maya, your check has been prepared. We will pay you through 5 p.m. today. We will need your access card and the key to your desk before giving you this final check. Are you able to provide these two items for us today? And so that's the dialogue. Um, you want me to work? Yeah, please. Okay, please, okay. let's do that. Okay. Um, cool, by the way. How oh, fun. Yeah. Um, the first thing I'd say is we don't have to worry about the dialogue yet. Okay. The first thing you have to ask is what is the scene about? Because the person who's doing all the talking is Tommy. But in fact, it seems to me like the scene is going to really be about Maya, that the point of the scene is that Maya's getting fired. The other point about the scene is that she's getting fired unfairly. So one of the most important things you have to do with each scene is say, what is this actually about dramatically? What is the center of the scene? The center of the scene is Maya's getting fired unfairly. Now, I would need to know the rest of the story to really work it because the truth is if Maya's getting fired unfairly and she is going to go out and get a much better job in a career that she really loves like paragliding teacher then this scene would first of all be much shorter because we don't really care why she got fired unfairly so you'd want to just get right to it in fact you know most of the dialogue would go but if the scene is about how she's going to now try and find out who did it and therefore it's going to get into a thriller, we would need to get those details into the dialogue. Because right now there isn't actually enough specifics in Tommy's accusation. So the first thing you need to do is decide 
what the scene is about. Is it about Maya being motivated to investigate, Maya being motivated to change her life? So we're talking about a bigger question, which is, what's your story about? The scene is part of the story. You have to know what the story is about, then you can know what the scene is about. The scene is always about an action. Currently, the only person taking an action in that scene is Tommy. Maya doesn't do anything except sit down. <laughs> and so one of the things I would say is if it's Maya's story, which seems like it was from the, the content of the scene, um, you would want to give her some action. It could be begging, it could be insisting that she be given a hearing, it could be trying to explain it, it could be turning on Tommy and saying why she thinks he's really doing it. There's a lot of possible scenes which give Maya an important action. Because really what we want to know is, what's Maya going to come out of this? It could be that Maya's crushed and it's going to, we're going to see her be miserable for a long time before she discovers paragliding teacher. Uh, so the, the, con the dialogue it only matters in the sense that it reflects what the character is trying to accomplish and what we are trying to tell in terms of story for the character. So that's the first thing is dialogue comes last. Um, the next thing about the dialogue, though, I would say is you can be a lot shorter. Um, you know, when she walked in, just as a dialogue lesson, I would say, he comes in and says, Maya, sit down. And then he says, names the, the, the websites. And the type of website, the specific information would tell us a lot about what this story is about, assuming it is the investigation. Or it's just, he says, you know, I'm, sit down, you know, linens are us, uh, <laughs> vacations unlimited, you know, and whatever it is, we're finding out about the person who did log in. And it's also just more interesting dialogue if he just starts reciting these weird things uh, or outrageous, you know, porn sites or whatever it is, terrorist sites. She's going to be like, I don't understand like she is, but then she's going to say, I saw Freddie at my desk or someone at my desk and you know that only so-and-so has a key because they're my superior. Whatever it is, you're going to be explaining the situation that sets up the rest of the scene and the rest of the business terminology that was in the scene should go. Um, unless it is possible to make it a wonderfully suspenseful scene in which Tommy is just blathering on with you know, corporate doublespeak, and we're getting tenser and tenser trying to find out what's he getting to? But then you would build the scene a little differently. His speech would be more Tarantino-y in which he's playing little mind games with her as he does it. Um, so it's not impossible. It's not like there's an only one way to write a scene. You can play this scene with that kind of long speech from Tommy, but then Tommy's got to have a reason that he's doing it. Um, the actual corporate liability, not that important. Uh, I can keep going, but I probably should stop there. <laughs> no, I love it. So I think the first thing then I need to determine what is it that's going to happen to Maya from this right. story? What's the story, then what's the scene? Because the scene only exists within a story. Um, and with the story, it's always gonna be for me the same six questions. Who is it about? What do they want? Why can't they get it? What do they do about that? Why doesn't that work? What is the end? 
And if you think about it in this case, it's like, well, who is it about? It's about Maya or Tommy, or maybe it's about someone else, about somebody that you know takes Maya's job, and this whole scene should just be Maya, you're fired. <laughs> um, but let's assume the scene's about Maya. So who is it about Maya? What does she want? Does she want to keep this job, or does she want to get a better life? Once you've made that, what's the obstacle? The obstacle of keeping the job is she got fired <laughs> unfairly. The obstacle of the new life is she wasn't prepared for this. She's broke. Uh, what does she do about that? If it's each one, if she wants the job back, she has to find out who did this or find out what Tommy is up to, or she would take those actions. Always asking, what is the story about? And the story is going to be about a character wanting something. And so the story is about she needs this job, she has this son, and you know she, she's kind of been left to pay a bunch of bills and money's tight for her, and she doesn't like this job, but she really needs it. Um, that's, that's part of the story. I guess there has to be more of what is going to happen to her life. Well, then you have to decide, yeah, in a big picture, what story do I want to tell? Do I want to tell the story of someone who takes on the corporate bad guys? Is it about someone who stumbles on a sinister plot? Is it someone, you know, the, whatever kind of story you want to tell um, is really going to make that determination. What kind of story do you like? If you like the sinister plot story, or if you like the she's going to team up with a whole bunch of other people who are unfairly fired and create their own company. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of, it could start be the start of a comedy or it could be the start of a thriller. Right. And so with the dialogue, it should be much more to the point, don't worry about the corporate doublespeak unless I was really going to do yeah. this crazy sort of Tarantino-esque. In theory, less is more on dialogue, but not always. Some great long scenes exist. It just had better be worth it. It better be something that is creating some set piece moment where something extraordinary is happening, not just a big turning point, but we're getting a sense of the style of these characters in this movie that's going to be all about mind games or all about taking down Tommy because he's such an ass. Right, like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Exactly. Th those long scenes and, mm -hmm. and shows these salesmen and kind of like what their style was and, and yeah. different things. Right, and so this is not that. I don't think that there are there's really any absolute rule like keep dialogue short, although in general, keep things short because we like to move along. But truthfully, it's more a matter of finding the model that you are trying to be like. If you're saying, yes, I want to have a really dialogue-heavy, intricate character-based drama, then keeping it short is not always to your advantage. It depends. You just have to make certain choices. Everything is a choice, and every choice has a price. You have to decide what type of thing you're trying to do, make the choice to do that, and then you build every other thing based on those choices. How many times have you been hired by a Hollywood studio or producer where they did not require you to outline for writing a script? Um, that's sort of tricky because I would never not outline. So therefore, whether they required it or not, I was going to do it. The interesting thing is whether or not they understood how much work an outline is. <laughs> um, because the truth is, very often, in order to figure out the solutions to a story, to make the choices of a story, because that's really what figuring out the solutions is, is saying it's going to be a story about this, it's going to be a story where this is the central action. That's the outlining process. And that's very, very difficult. That can take as harder work 
than writing the script. And so everyone is always asking you to essentially do that work before they decide whether they're going to hire you. Um, although things have changed a, a little bit, but truthfully, most people assume that an outline is very short <laughs> and they did them in school, so it's not a big deal. But an outline is really the main work of screenwriting. And it can take twice as long as writing the script itself. If you've got a good outline, you can write a script and it will go pretty quickly. Figuring out all the possible shapes and choices of an outline, that's brutally hard. Um, so the answer is, I would never take on a job that I hadn't at least roughly outlined because I wouldn't know that I could solve it. Um, do people ask you to do outlines for free? Yes. Should you do it for free? No. Um, eh. It depends on where you are in your career and what it's worth to you. If you want the experience of doing the outline and you want to gain their trust, but don't do something you're going to regret for free. <laughs> I think that would be my advice on that. Um, the other thing is um, features and shows are very different. In shows, the outline, breaking the story, is a required step for the company. Um, it's also usually not done alone. You don't usually send one person off to do it, although sometimes you do. Uh, depends on the showrunner. But um, outlining a show is part of the, literally part of the job. Like you go into the room, you start by breaking the story. So um, nobody would ask you to do that without being paid because you're already on the job. Do you have a proven style of outlining that has worked for you the most? It's proven to me <laughs> um, in the sense that, yeah, I think it's great. I've done a, if you check out my videos, there's one called Why Outline and one called How to Outline. The How to has the outline system. Um, but basically what it really comes down to is the important thing is to think in scenes and write a, a, a written version where you are writing down the scenes in a list. That's what an outline is. An outline is a list of scenes. Some people can do it on index cards. Um, they even have index card software where you can put a lot on it. Um, I believe that the important thing is to understand that you are breaking a story into scenes and that when you have your full list of scenes and you know what everything is going to happen in every scene and there's nothing missing, then you're ready to write. So that's the importance of an outline. The actual form of it it's whatever works for you. I believe that the most important thing, the thing to put in that first line, the, the, the headline of each outline step, is not where it takes place or even what happens. It's what is the essential action, the point of the scene. So the point of this, like we were talking before about a scene where Maya gets fired. The point of that scene is that Maya gets unfairly fired. Um, you try to make things active, always try to put things in active form. So Maya gets fired is actually passive. She's getting fired. The scene actually is Tommy fires Maya unfairly. Now for me, that's a scene line because I know exactly what the action is. And I try to always break it down to that. Sometimes, you know, I'm the only one looking at it. Oh, that's the other thing. Outlines should be for you. Outlines are not to be read by other people. It's a workspace. It's a workplace. Um, if you have to do an outline for another person, that's a performance. You should copy your outline and then write a version for other people to read. 
But, but for you to work in an outline, the important thing is that you're doing whatever will trigger you to understand the point of the scene. Sometimes I know a scene so well that I'll just write, Joe drives to Dallas. Now, I know that during the course of that he has to have a breakdown, but it doesn't matter, I know what that means. But really the scene is Joe has a breakdown while driving to, <laughs> to Dallas. The important thing is the central action of the scene. And while there may be many steps in any scene, um, there's usually one thing more than anything else that that scene is about, and that's the point of the outline. Then for me, underneath it, I'll put everything I can think of. I'll write dialogue in my outline. I'll do whatever I can because I can always just cut and paste it out later. But that space under the headline is where you can ask yourself questions. Um, you can, and I write them in a different color. I write, why is Joe having a breakdown? How do we know that Joe is having a breakdown? And then I'll answer it. Um, and I'll describe, maybe I'll say like he crumples up his hamburger and smashes it into the rearview mirror, whatever it is, I'm trying to get everything I can into the outline so that I will know what it is when I write the scene. Those outline descriptions can be very long. They can be arguments with myself. Um, the most important thing to do though is break everything into a scene. There's nothing that is going to go into your script that isn't in a scene. So the whole point of an outline is to get you to remember, if I don't have a scene where that happens, if I don't have a scene where that subject is raised or that feeling occurs, it's not gonna be in the story. How common is it for you to write backwards? I always believe everyone should write backwards, but by that I do not mean you actually start in the last scene and write backwards. I mean, know the ending. That's really what write backwards means. Uh, right backwards is a crucial thing because until you know the ending, you don't actually know what your story is about. For instance, um, if, if you're telling a story in which someone is trying to save their sister from lions, <laughs> then whether or not they actually do save their sister and how they do it, do they do it by overcoming their fear of lions or do they do it by learning lion language and telling the lions to stop, that's going to be what the story's about. And until you know that last thing, the thing that resolves the tension, you don't really know how to write anything else. So work backwards really means know your ending. Once you know the ending, everything else makes sense in a different way because you know that it's an obstacle towards that or a step towards that. When you were asked to take out that core part of the one script, um, did you go back to your outline and you saw it there, I don't know if it was like the midpoint or where it was, and then try to rearrange, like how, how did, when, when you went to that, what was your reaction to seeing that? Actually, I, I totally failed on the first time I had to do this. So I'll tell you about the second time when I succeeded at it. But the important thing is if you're taking out the core of a story, if you're taking out the essential center of the story, it's not gonna be in one place. The horrible thing, the reason that you can't do it is because it's in every scene and that every single action the person's taking is about a thing. And if they say, let's not do that thing, then you're really in trouble because you have to rewrite everything. Um, and worse than rewrite everything, you don't have any reason to do the other thing. Uh, so you don't just tear it out, you have to replace it. Um, I was working on a thriller. It was about a schizophrenic woman uh, living in New York. She had just been released from a mental hospital and she's living in a crappy poor apartment in Hell's Kitchen. And 
the woman next door to her is having an affair with a police officer, a street cop. And the, they have an argument, the, the lovers have an argument, and during the argument, they, the woman grabs the cop's gun, it goes off while he's trying to get it back, and he kills her. The schizophrenic woman hears all this through the wall and tries to leave. Um, and when she does, the cop sees her. And the rest of the thriller is, what's going to happen about that? I was in a very ornate 1970s character-based kind of frame of mind. So not only did I add that, but I added two more characters. One was an evil sergeant who was trying to force the cop, who was actually not a bad guy, to kill the witness. So the villain is actually the murderer's boss. The woman who has the witness has nowhere to go. No, no one's going to listen to her. She's schizophrenic. She says she heard something through the wall. What, you know. Um, so the one person that she had to turn to in my first draft of the story was a guy who was an orderly in the hospital where she was. And he was very kind to her. And she finds him and she tells him what happened and she asks for his help. That was a very ornate, complex set of relationships. And um, Jodie Foster's company um, loved it, but it was difficult. And they, God bless them, they gave me a lot of money and a lot of time and they worked with me and we worked on it, trying to figure out how to make it a little more acceptable to the studio system. Um, and uh, the executive there was Meg Lefauve, who is now a phenomenal teacher and writer. Um, and we worked on it, and she never asked the thing that I knew we needed. <laughs> but she never said, could we cut one of these four characters? <laughs> You've got a thriller with four main characters. And I eventually said, I think there's a way to get rid of the guy that the mentally ill person goes to. Now that was taking out the core of the story, because by the end of the story, they have teamed up to defeat the evil sergeant. And so I was removing the center of the story. Um, and I had been asked before in other jobs to remove the center of the story, and it just ruined my life. So in this case, I thought, you know, I asked the essential question, what is this story about? And the story was about this woman who knew that she had heard a real thing, but because of her disability, people were not taking her seriously. And the people who were taking her seriously were trying to kill her. Right. Mm -hmm. She's the center of the story. And I had divided her action among two people. I thought that was cool. As a writing exercise, it is cool. As a movie for Jodie Foster, it's not cool. It was a dumb choice. <laughs> but on the other hand, when I wrote it, Jodie Foster wasn't going to do it. So um, once I moved into that position, I thought, you know what? This woman's character needs to hold the whole story on herself, and the relationship really is about her and the poor policeman in between her and the villain. So from a four-way story, I made it a three-way story. Um, it was better. It was a better version. Now, I had worked really hard on the four-way version, and I loved it. And I was very proud of myself for recognizing that there are, even with something that is, like, I think it's great, the original version. 
but it's not the only way to do it. And that was a real breakthrough for me to recognize that something that I loved and felt right also had another version that I loved and eventually felt was even more right. The triangle version was much more powerful and the characters became much more interesting. So how do you do it? You look at what is the real center of the story. The center of the story was this woman that because of her disability had very limited ability to defend herself or get help and how she found the resources of communicating with people to solve that problem. Did the film ever get made with another? Alas, no, oh. it didn't. And they tried, they tried so hard. They were yeah. wonderful. Um, they, they did, but it was just a really hard project at a really hard time. And there's a lot of times when something, you don't get all the pieces together. And if you follow the trades, you'll often see this happening where a passion project for someone, but it requires to get the right alignment of stars and financing and all these other things have to come together and everyone has to believe in it for all their own reasons. It's a, a frankly a, a astonishing that anything gets made at all. Mm, I would watch that movie. Me too. Yeah, yeah that's wow, that's, that's powerful. Yeah. Mm. But, um, but the answer is how do you remove the center of your story? And the answer is you look for where it is in the story and you'll usually find it's, it's not where you, the thing you're clinging to because the thing you're clinging to is clearly making people uncomfortable. And if enough people are telling you something is not working for them, you have to come to a choosing point. You have to say, I want it to work for me and I don't care about anybody else. But if a, if a lot of people are saying, I really love this, but it's not working in this way, you have to think about, is there something about that that you can rethink? The other thing is sometimes you have to remove the heart of your story and then you better just replace it. Find a new heart, <laughs> find a new core to the story that works well and the story will keep living. Wow, that was like so metaphorically well turned. <laughs> yeah, with with this story, was was the schizophrenic woman was it her journey out of um, the hospital into quote normalized life, or was it also getting people to regard her as? That was actually one of the big problems. Was it was very important to me to fairly portray what often is not shown in movies. Most movies are like, well, if they could just get sympathy, they'd be cured. Um, and the reality of, of her illness was that she was not going to get all over it with an insight. She had a, a serious mental illness. And the question was, how can she communicate and gain others trust and learn to trust them in order to get help? Mm. Um, and so one of the hardest things was essentially a lot of people wanted it to become a story about someone who's a neglected action hero. And, and that's not what, what the company wanted. You know, they really respected the point of the script and certainly not what I intended. I wanted to try and talk about what it's like to have a mental illness and need to work with it. 